You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I'm just going to read verses 14 through 18 this morning. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 17 and 18. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ... I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let's pray together as we begin. Our Father, you are holy. We confess that. We know that. And we also know that we are unholy people who are undeserved and ill-deserving your grace, your mercy, your love, and your goodness. But thank you that we have a Savior who is holy and a Savior who stands between us who are unworthy sinners and our God who is a holy God. And we do pray, Father, that through your word today, which is also holy, that you would make us holier and sanctify us by your truth, conform us into the image of Christ, that we might look upon him and that we might look upon your word and be changed today. We do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience in reading through the Bible that you come across a passage or a verse or a story or something and you start to ask yourself, what in the world is that doing there? It just doesn't seem to flow with the whole context and it doesn't seem to be connected to what you just read that went before it and it doesn't seem to be connected to what seems to come after it. It just sort of appears like it's crammed in there and and shoved in there and it, it sits there and you're not sure where did that come from. I, I had that happen and a good example of that actually is at the end of the book of Genesis the end of the book of Genesis in chapters 36 and 37, you're reading about this amazingly dysfunctional family of Jacob and his sons, and there is this one bright shining light in the middle of all of this dysfunction. His name is Joseph. And the story is of Joseph and his the jealousy that his brothers have, and, and Joseph has some dreams that sort of put his brother's jealousy right over the top, and then they have opportunity and they plot to take his life, but that's thwarted, and then he gets sold into Egypt, and and you end chapter 37, and Joseph is on his way down to Egypt with the caravan. And then you start Genesis chapter 38, and you ask yourself, what in the world is this doing here? Genesis 38 isn't about Joseph. You get to the end of chapter 37, and you're saying to yourself, this is shaping up to be a really good story. This could be a blockbuster. This is a phenomenal story. I can't wait to see how this turns out. Then you start chapter 38, and it's about one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, And it's a story of immorality and intrigue and deception and lies and all of this corruption that goes on in the midst of this immensely dysfunctional family. And then chapter 39 picks up with Joseph again, and it's Joseph for the rest of the book of Genesis in, in Egypt. And you start to ask yourself, what is chapter 38 doing there? Why did Moses drop the story of Joseph, pick up the story of Judah, and tell that whole story for a chapter, and then pick up Joseph again. Why interrupt the story? It seems out of place, until upon further reflection you start to look at, and you start to realize, oh, I understand the concept text now. I start to see what this tells me about Joseph and his family and what's going on here. 
And I'm not going to tell you why it is where it's at and what the purpose of that chapter is because it would spoil your own discovery. So you go home and read the book of Genesis and you look at it and see if you can figure out why it's there. But I had a similar feeling to that when I read through Philippians chapter 2. I read about do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit and lowliness of mind to seem others as better than yourself and have this mind in you which is also in Christ Jesus. He condescended. He rose again. He ascended all the way up to the throne of God. Do nothing in grumbling or, or um, complaining but... Rather, let your light shine before men, and God is at work in you to will and to do for His good pleasure, so you work out your salvation. Then verse 17, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. And I read verse 17, and I asked myself this question, where in the world are you going to that, Paul? What does that have to do with grumbling and complaining? What does that have to do with me working out my own salvation, or God working in me both to will and to work for His good pleasure? It seems like there should be a chapter break there. Like whoever it was that, start, that did the chapter breaks in our Bibles missed it and should have put a chapter break right there between verse 16 and verse 17. Or at least that Paul should say something like, I'm introducing an entirely new subject here, so here we go. I'm going to talk about sacrifices and drink offerings. It just doesn't seem to flow with the rest of what's in Philippians chapter 2. But upon further reflection, as we sort of back out of the details of it, and start to look at what Paul is saying in chapter 2, then we realize, oh, this fits in perfectly. Now I can see where he's going. So let's back out for just a second, and let me remind you of what chapter 2 is all about. The title that I gave you for Philippians chapter 1 was The Purpose of Christian Living. It's summed up in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's the purpose of Christian living. It's all about Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's what chapter 1 is about. The priority of the gospel, the priority of Christ, the priority of His church, the priority of His plan. It's not about me, it's all about Christ. Then you get to chapter 2, and the title I gave you for chapter 2 was the pattern for Christian living. And that basically is given to us, and the essence of chapter 2 is all summed up in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, and have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the big idea of chapter 2. Then the Apostle Paul, after telling us you ought to have the mind of Christ, and you ought to live your life for others, he goes on to give us four examples, four patterns for Christian living. The first is Jesus Christ, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard His equality with God something to be held on to at all costs. But he willingly condescended and took upon himself human flesh. He was made in the likeness of men. He came and was in appearance as a man. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the supreme, ultimate example of living your life for other people, of considering the interests of others ahead of your own. That's the number one, supreme, best, purest example of other-centered living that Paul could have given us. And then after sort of a parenthesis of sorts between t verses 12 and 16, where he talks about working out our salvation and doing so without grumbling, we get in verses 17 and 18 the second example of selfless living, and that's Paul. Now the rest of the chapter is taking up with three more examples of what it means to live your life considering the interests of others ahead of your own. The first example, the first of the next three is Paul. The first one is Jesus. The second one is Paul in verses 17 and 18. I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. And I rejoice in that. Then he gives us a second example beginning in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Look at verse 20. 
This is what Paul says of Timothy. I have no one else of kindred spirit who would genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. So who's the, the third perfect example, or third example of somebody who lives for others? There's Jesus, then there's Paul, then there's Timothy. Then the fourth person, the fourth pattern that he gives us is down in verse 25, and it's Epaphroditus. But I thought it necessary shortly, sorry, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. So all of chapter 2 is about the pattern of Christian living. All of chapter 2 is about what does it mean to live my life for other people? Well, Paul says, let me give you four examples, just in case you think that it's some idealistic fantasy, that you really cannot, this side of glory, be concerned with other people more than you are yourself. Paul says, let me give you four real live, flesh and blood examples of men who did just that. Here's Jesus' example, verses 5 to 8. Here's my own example, verses 17 and 18. Here's Timothy's example, verses 19 through 24. And here's Epaphroditus' example, verses 25 through 30. So all of chapter 4 really centers around four people. Can you keep that in your mind? It's all about living for others. Paul says, I'll give you four patterns, four people who've demonstrated this. Jesus, me, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. That's chapter 2. So now you see how verses 17 follow? What Paul is doing is he's giving us another example of what he told us back in verses 3 and 4. To consider other people's interests is more important than yourselves. So we're going to look at a couple things about what Paul says in verses 17 and 18. We're going to look first at his perspective on his circumstances and then his response to his circumstances. Now, Paul says at the beginning of verse 17, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. The word but at the beginning of verse 17, it's there in the NASB. I'm not sure if it's there in your translation, but it's there in the New American Standard. The word but, Allah, in the Greek, is not a contradiction type but. It's not as if Paul is saying, all of this is back here, but this. And he's not changing subjects. It's what's called a first first. I had a real technical name for it, but I lost it. It's, it's known as something in the Greek to people who have good memories that can remember stuff like that. That's not me. But it has a certain emphasis in the Greek, which what, it, what Paul is doing is he's saying, all of this here is true, but even, and he's taking something to a higher level. And what he's taking to the next level or intensifying is the metaphors that he gave back in verse 16. He gave two metaphors that he used to describe his own ministry. That of running and that of toiling. The running was the metaphor and it carried the idea of a of an athlete inside of a stadium running and straining for the finish line. Like he's really going all out at the end of the race to try and be the first guy across the finish line. That idea of exerting everything in an athletic competition. The second metaphor he gave was that of toiling and exerting yourself and laboring to the point of exhaustion. Where you just feel beaten down and tired, you just collapse into bed. So Paul uses those two metaphors in verse 16. Then he's cranking it up a notch, and you'll notice that all of the language has changed. Verse 17, he's not talking about running, he's not talking about working, he's talking about sacrifices. And he says, but even if, and he goes up a notch, and he said, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Now there's two questions that are raised, and they are this, and these are the two questions we're going to try and answer. Number one, when Paul speaks of a drink offering, is he referring to the life that he lived or the death that he was going to die? Was Paul referring to the life that he lived or was Paul referring to the imminency or the possibility of the death that he would die as a martyr? Remember, he's in Rome. He's on trial for capital crimes of sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. 
Those are the those are the charges against him. He could be executed. That's a real possibility. So when Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, is he speaking of the life that he's living or is he speaking of the death that he was going to die? And then the second question is, what in the world is a drink offering? And, and, and what is the significance there? Why does Paul liken himself to a drink offering? There is a tremendous significance to the drink offering. Let's deal with the first question. Is Paul referring to the life that he was living as a drink offering or was he referring to the death that he was going to die? The word I am being poured out is all a translation of one Greek word, spendo, in the Greek. And it's in the present tense. It's used twice in the New Testament. It's used here and it's used in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Now, in both Philippians and in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul uses spendo in a figurative sense. He's not talking about a literal sacrifice. He's not talking about a literal offering of something to God. He's using it figuratively to describe something. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, I think Paul is using it figuratively to describe his death and the offering of his life fully in service to God. He's got, he's already to the very end of his life, and he says, I'm being poured out. This is it. This is the end. This is the consummating. This is the fulfilling act of my life and ministry. The time of my departure has come. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul uses the present tense, indicating that Paul was not looking forward to something that was going to happen, but something that was for him a reality even as he wrote. You catch that? I am right now in prison, in confinement. As I write, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He's speaking of something that was present tense for him. So I don't think the Apostle Paul was looking forward to dying and saying, I'm going to be poured out then. He's saying, right now, I am offering to God a drink offering. He was speaking not of the death that he was going to die, but of the life that he lived. Paul was a living sacrifice, not a dead one. That's why in Romans chapter 12, he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's Paul's life. It is the mind of Christ. Listen to this. This is all in this, the whole context here and this whole point of the Paul's making is what it means to have the mind of Christ and to consider other people as more important than yourself. The apostle Paul is not viewing his death as an offering to the Philippians. He is viewing his life and his ministry as an offering to the Philippians. In other words, the mind of Christ is not the mind that looks at my death and says, oh, this is a sacrifice to God. I can do anything I want. I can hoard it all to myself. But when I die, I'm going to give that to the Lord. That's not the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is the mind that looks at its own life and says, I'm going to offer what I live to the Lord. Day by day, moment by moment, lived for others. That's the mind of Christ. So when Paul says, I am a drink offering being poured out, he's not speaking of a death that he was going to die. He's speaking of the life that he was living for other people. And he's saying, this is a drink offering that I'm offering up to the Lord. Now, it is a very real possibility that Paul could die in prison. Don't misunderstand that. He was on trial for capital crimes. But throughout the epistle to the Philippians, look at chapter 2, verse 24, for instance. Throughout the epistle to the Philippians, Paul makes mention of the fact that even though it was possible for him to die, he didn't. Paul didn't seem to expect that that was going to be the outcome. Because he says in verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming to you shortly. So does it sound like Paul was expecting the outcome of his trial to be his execution? No, he wasn't. He knew there were. We saw this in the book of Acts. There were no witnesses. There was no case. There was no evidence. He was on trial. He was an innocent man. He had proclaimed his innocence all the way up. No ruler in the Roman Empire was willing to convict him. And he lands in Rome 
an amazing thing with no case log against him, but he has to remain a prisoner in Rome and he has to stand before Caesar. Paul knew and Paul expected that he was going to be released after his trial with Caesar. I fully expect in the Lord that I'm going to come to you shortly. He doesn't expect to die. What he expects is that through his service in Rome, through his service to the Philippians, he was pouring himself out as a drink offering. It's the life that we live, friends, that is a drink offering to the Lord, not the death that we die. Now the second question, what is a drink offering? What is a drink offering? What is the significance of that? Why does Paul refer to himself, or we should say his life, his ministry, as a drink offering? There are two different types of offerings in the Old Testament. And I'm, I'm borrowing this distinction from Dwight Pentecost because I think this is a healthy distinction. And it helps us sort of categorize Old Testament sacrifices and offerings. There were two different types. There were what was called sweet savor offerings, and then there was what was called non-sweet savor offerings. Sweet savor offerings and non-sweet savor offerings. A sweet savor offering was an offer. I should say, let me, let me talk about the non-sweet savor offering first. The non-sweet savor offering was an offering or a sacrifice in which God did not take particular delight. They were not joyful offerings. They were not celebratory offerings. They were offerings where you brought it to the Lord and the attitude and the, the position of your heart was supposed to be one of remorse, one of repentance, one of sorrow. It was a sacrifice. This animal had to die in somebody's place. Sin was being dealt with, defilement was being dealt with, guilt was being atoned for, all of these things were happening, and the Lord looked down on them, and it was what was called a non-sweet savor sacrifice. It was not something that God took delight in because of the nature of what was being offered and the transaction that was taking place. It was a transaction of blood being shed so that a guilty person could go free, so that atonement could be made. Those were non-sweet savor sacrifices. Then there were sweet savor sacrifices. A sweet savor sacrifice was a sacrifice in which God took particular delight. Because what was being offered and what was being expressed was not my repentance, my guilt, and my remorse, but what was being offered and expressed in a sweet savor sacrifice was my joyfulness, my thanksgiving, my giving back to God, my praise, my adoration, my worship. And it was one of celebration. So in the temple, you could have two sort of, two sort of spirits happening, two, two expressions. One of guilt and remorse. I'm guilty. This is serious. Blood's being shed. This is a remorseful time. And yet one of in, intense celebration and adoration because you're so thankful that the offering of this animal is forgiving your sin. So you had non-sweet savor sacrifices that dealt with guilt, where the transaction of forgiveness for blood shed was made. Then you had sweet savor sacrifices where the transaction was not one dealing with sin, but rejoicing and adoring and thanking God. Now throughout the Old Testament, a lot of times the sweet savor sacrifice, the drink offering, and the drink offering by way is a sweet savor sacrifice. They were coupled with the guilt offerings. And many times and often they were offered together. In fact, there were no times that I'm aware of, and I might be wrong about this, but I couldn't find any point in the Bible, where a drink offering was offered all by itself. Where anybody just walked in and said, I'm going to offer the Lord and I'm going to pull out a jigger of wine here around the altar and offer this by itself. A drink offering always accompanied some other more substantial sacrifice, an animal. Let me read to you a couple places in the Old Testament where it speaks of these sacrifices. Numbers chapter 15 says, Then make an offering by fire to the Lord and listen for the words sweet-smelling savor. Listen to what it says. 
Then make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or as a free will offering, or in your appointed times, to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. The one who presents his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour, mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil, and you shall prepare wine for the drink offering. One-fourth of a hin with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, mixed with one-third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering you shall offer one-third of a hin of wine as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And when you prepare a bowl as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or for peace offerings to the Lord, then you shall offer with the bowl a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-half of a hin of oil, and you shall offer as the drink offering one-half a hin of wine as an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. You notice the mention of soothing aroma? He's describing a sweet savor sacrifice. You offer the animal and you pour over it the offering of wine as a drink offering. Leviticus 23:18. This is on another occasion, speaking of different sacrifices. Along with the bread, you shall present seven one-year-old lamb, male lambs without defect and a bowl of the herd and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. You notice the mention of drink offerings. Then within the tabernacle itself, and you can find this in Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 to 41, Within the tabernacle itself, there were two sacrifices made every day. In the morning, they offered a lamb, and on top of that, they had a, a, a drink offering that they poured over the lamb. They did one in the morning, and then they did the exact same thing in the evening at twilight. Right as dusk was setting, they would offer another lamb with another drink offering. Now, a drink offering in the Old Testament was wine. It was wine. Do you notice the mixture of wine? So much wine, so much of a hint of wine. They were to pour out the wine on top of the animal, and they poured it over top of the animal, poured out the drink offering to the Lord. So when the people walked in, they brought their animal, and if they had a drink offering, they brought their wine. Now, why wine? And by the way, it's not grape juice. It was wine. I'm not condoning drinking, and I'm not endorsing wine, and I'm not endorsing drunkenness. The Bible never describes drunkenness in any kind of positive light whatsoever. But back then, they had wine. And you know why it was wine? It was wine because wine was a symbol of joy. It symbolized joy, just like at the marriage in Cana of Galilee. What happened at a marriage celebration? It was celebratory. There was joyfulness. There was laughter. There was dancing. There was happiness. And God is not opposed to any of those things. He is opposed to drunkenness, but He's not opposed to joy or laughter or happiness or celebration or any of that. God is a celebrator. And so wine in the Old Testament was a symbol of joy because it always accompanied, or most it was supposed to accompany, celebrations and joyful occasions. Wine was also a symbol of abundant provision. If you had wine, it meant you were wealthy enough to afford to drink wine. And if you had wine, it was usually a symbol that the crops had been good to you that year. So in the Old Testament, when you read about the hills dripping with wine, you know what that is a figurative description of? The hills are alive with the abundance of fruit. And God has graciously and wonderfully and abundantly provided for us. So when you walked into the tabernacle or into the temple to offer up your offering, here's what you would do. You would bring your lamb in. The lamb's throat would be cut. It would be put up according to all of the prescribed details in Leviticus and Exodus, put up onto the altar for a burnt offering as an atonement for your sin and your guilt. That is a very solemn thing. That is a very serious thing. Because in your mind as you're doing that, you realize... This animal's innocent, and I'm not. And in order for God to forgive me or overlook my sin, something innocent has to die and shed its blood in my place. 
So you offer up the animal knowing that because of the blood shed by that innocent victim, God could look on you with favor and forgiveness. Now, we know 2,000 years later that Jesus was the ultimate Lamb of God, right? Because that He was the innocent victim who died in our place so that God could look in favor on us. We were the guilty ones, and He was innocent. That's what the animals look forward to. But in offering up that animal, very solemn, very serious. But as you watch that animal sit there in the flames and burning, there's something inside of you that says, I'm forgiven. God is looking with favor upon me because of what happened to that animal. So I can know that my sins are overlooked. My sins are forgiven. Atonement has been made. I'm not guilty before the Lord. And so what do you do to express to God your thankfulness and your joy over the forgiveness of your sins? You would pour over top of the animal your drink offering. Now what happens when you pour something over top of something that's burning? It doesn't put it out if the fire is really good. It doesn't put it out, but what does it do? All of the smoke and the steam from that offering goes straight up, doesn't it? Just like trying to put out a campfire. All of the smoke and the steam go straight up. You put out a campfire with a couple gallons of wine, if you have that kind of money, and you just want to throw wine on your campfire to put it out, you would notice that in that steam it would smell sweet. You would smell that sweetness. That's a sweet savor offering. And the smoke and the steam ascending, pictured or portrayed for them, the realization that this offering was going up before the throne of God and He was looking down on it and He was pleased with it. And He was pleased with it on account of me. So that's what a drink offering was. A drink offering was something you poured over the animal. It was the consummating act of your worship. It was the the zenith of your worship. This is my thanksgiving, my praise and my adoration that my sins have been forgiven because of this animal. And so you offer back to God a symbol of your joy and a symbol of His abundant provision. We're going to get to this in Philippians chapter 4, but that's exactly what a financial gift is. When we give to the Lord out of the abundance of our possessions, we are giving back to the Lord something He's already given to us as a recognition that you have provided this for us, and so we are giving it back to you as an offering. Now, a drink offering was just that. It was wine poured over an animal as an expression of joy and a giving back to the God, to God, part of the abundance that He had provided for you. Now, two things about a drink offering that are significant. Number one, a drink offering, like I said earlier, to the best of my knowledge, was never offered just by itself. It always accompanied something more substantial. It always was poured out upon something which was the main focus. The drink offering was never the main event of the worship. It was never the main event of the offering. Something else was always there that was more significant, more substantial, more serious, more meaningful The drink offering just was like a garnish on the plate. It was just something to accent it. Something to sort of make it more meaningful. Make it better and prettier. It was never the main thing. The main thing was the animal. The main thing was the blood. The main thing was the sacrifice for sins. The drink offering was just something you threw onto that to make that even more beautiful and better. You understand that? So now when Paul says, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, what does he mean? He says, I'm just like the wine in the Old Testament that was being poured out over top of the real substantial sacrifice, the real main thing. What is the focus? What is the big event that's going on? Paul says, it's your sacrifice and your service. And the word sacrifice referred to, it was used literally in the New Testament of animal sacrifices, but here Paul uses it figuratively of the life of the Philippians, their service to God and their sacrifices to God. Now what had happened to the to Paul, that he would refer to the sacrifice of the Philippians. All of Philippians is a thank you letter sent to the church because they had supported the apostle. They had sacrificed and they had given to Paul. 
So Paul's writing back to them and he's saying, your sacrifice and your service, and that word service is the word from which we get our, our English word liturgy. It meant a religious service, a religious activity. Your service to the Lord and your sacrifice to the Lord, those are the main things. The giving of my life to you in apostolic ministry, in running and toiling, in working and in laboring, is just the drink offering. Now here's the question to ask yourself. In the Apostle Paul's mind, whose service was more significant? The Philippians or his? The Philippians. Your sacrifice and your service, that's the focal point of everything, Paul says. I'm just something added to that, really sort of insignificant in itself, something that really could disappear or not be there and it wouldn't detract from the meaningfulness of what you have done. But my apostolic labors and my life and my ministry are something to just be poured out on top of what you as a church offer to the Lord. My offering, my sacrifice, and my service is insignificant. So what did the Apostle Paul see as the most significant sacrifice and service? His or theirs? Theirs. Now let me ask you a question. Can you name any of them? The Philippians, can you name any of them? Uh, Lydia? The jailer? Any of them super saints? Any of them alter world history? But you know Paul, don't you? Here's a man who single-handedly spread the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. 30 years time. Planted more churches than anybody we have ever known or recorded in human history. Wrote two-thirds of the books of our New Testament. Here's a man that forever shaped human history through his writings and through his influence. And he says to the Philippians, it's just a drink offering. The real sacrifice is what you guys have done. And I'm content, I'm rejoicing, if I could just be poured out over what you offer. So that you guys would get the credit. I'll take the back seat. I'm just the wine. You guys are the focal point of everything. Friends, that is humility. Can you even fathom that? Can you even fathom that? This from a man who claimed that he was the less than the least of all the saints, Ephesians 3.8. That's his mindset. You and I would never say that Paul's sacrifice was nothing compared to the Philippians, but he looks at his own service and he says, this is just something to be poured out. This is really insignificant. This is nothing. It could, I could, and he's serious. This is why the Apostle Paul is a perfect example of somebody who considered the interests of others as more important than himself. He looked at the sacrifice and service of the Philippians. He says, that's more significant than what I do. I would disagree with Paul. (laughs) But I can't. Because what he's saying is true. That is the mindset of a man who thinks like Christ. Their sacrifice and their service far more significant than my own. It's a drink offering. That's his perspective. I'm just something tacked on to the end of what's significant. What you guys are doing is really what's significant. What I'm doing here in a prison in Rome, just something to be poured out. I don't even get credit for it. It all goes to you. That's phenomenal. That's his perspective. Second, look at his response to his circumstances in verse 18. He says at the end of verse 17, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. What was it that wine symbolized, the first thing? What was it? Wine was a symbol of joy. Do you notice joy anywhere in the Philippian context? 
You notice it mentioned four times, no less than four times in these verses? Why? That's why Paul chose the drink offering. The drink offering was an expression of joy. And Paul says, I'm content to be poured out over your sacrifice and service, and I rejoice in that. I'm not complaining about it. How does this comport with, how does this connect with complaining in the context? Just this, Paul saying, my response to my circumstances in Rome as a prisoner, being poured out for you, me made nothing so that you guys could be the central focus and the plan and purpose in the eyes of God. I rejoice in that. I'm not complaining about that. Sitting in prison for however long it might take, two years, whatever it has been, Paul says, I rejoice. He doesn't complain about his circumstances. By the way, rejoicing is always the alternative to complaining. You can do two things when bad things happen. You can complain or you can rejoice. Those are the two options that we have. And our hearts will either rejoice or our hearts will complain. One of the two. You say, I don't do either. I just sit there and be quiet. Yeah, but you sit there and be quiet complaining. Rejoicing is always verbal. If you're quiet, it's because inside you're complaining. You just don't want to verbalize it because I've been preaching on it for two weeks and your spouse will call you on it. Those are the two options that we have, rejoicing or complaining. And Paul says, I rejoice. I share my joy with you all. And then he calls the Philippians, rejoice in this too. Right? Don't complain about my circumstances. Don't complain about your own circumstances. Chapter 1, verse 30, you're experiencing the same sufferings that I'm experiencing. He knew they were suffering. And Paul's setting an example. And he's saying, you want to know what the mind of Christ looks like? The mind of Christ looks like people who are willing to view their own sacrifice and service to the Lord as nothing compared to the sacrifice and service of other people and to offer that to them. And even if they get no praise for it and no glory for it whatsoever, they're willing to say, I rejoice in that. I don't need anything for that. I can rejoice that it's offered on your account and that it just is a garnish on the plate of what you offer to the Lord. That is humility. That is the mind of Christ. That is the perspective of somebody who views it from our, our service from Christ's perspective. That's what it means to consider other people as more important than yourself. The first greatest example of that is Christ. The second one is Paul. And do you notice how many verses Paul spends speaking about his own mind of Christ? One. He's going to go on and on about Timothy and on and on about Epaphroditus. But when it comes to himself, how much attention does he give to himself? It's noteworthy. Just one verse. Hey, I just want you to know how I view what's going on, Paul says. I view it as a drink offering given to God on your behalf. And if God would look with favor on that and receive what you offer to Him as sweet-smelling in His sight, I'm content with that and I rejoice in that. Friends, there's correction for us in those words because we tend to look at what it is that we offer to God as being more significant than what other people offer to God. This was the problem with the people put with the, the people standing and looking at the treasury wall in Jesus' day, while everybody walked by and one person put in a little mite and somebody else dumped in a big bag of change, and everybody views the person who dumps in the big bag of change as the sacrificer and the real giver, and boy, they're the person on whom the kingdom of God stands and falls. And Jesus said, no, the little old lady who walked by and dropped a penny in, she's the real giver, she's the real sacrificer, she's the real one on which the kingdom of God swings and pivots. We look at sometimes what we do in our sacrifice and our service, and we think, oh, the church could never live without me. Just try it for a little bit. Don't show up for four weeks and see how we do. We would do just fine. The church would always do just fine. If I died tomorrow, everybody here would do just fine. I know that. Dave would be preaching next week. And you would rejoice. And it would be good. You don't need me. Nobody needs you. Nobody needs me. Why? Because there's no such thing as an indispensable person. 
The mind of Christ is the person who looks at their life and says, I am really insignificant in the whole scheme of things. I'm not a mover and a shaker. I'm not the person on whom the church rises and falls and history turns. I'm not that person. Paul was such a person. History did turn on that guy. He did. He has influenced human history other than Jesus Christ more than any other individual in the history of the world. Yet, how did he view himself? I'm a dispensable drink offering. Pour me out, use me up, burn me up. Even if nobody remembers my name, I can rejoice. That's the mind of Christ. It's true what the Lord said. The greatest among us are the servants of all. Isn't that true? The greatest among us are the servants of all. You would be hard-pressed to find a greater servant and a more sacrificial servant than Paul. And you would be hard-pressed to find a greater man than Paul at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for a humbling reminder from the pen of this apostle as to our real insignificance in everything. At the same time, we thank You that You condescend to use us and that You choose to do so. We thank You that by grace You allow us to have a part in Your plan and Your purpose. And we pray, Father, that You give us the perspective of Paul, the mind of Christ, which looks at what we offer to You and sees it as simply nothing in and of itself, but something that You can use in a mighty way if You would condescend to do so. Lord, we ask that as we walk away from here, that we would walk away with the benefit and the blessing of Your Spirit and the presence of Your Son, We ask it in His name and for His glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.